Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. It says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Paul has taken over from, he's been dictating the letter up to this point, and now he is writing in his own handwriting, whether he's just writing in large print so they would see the difference, or he had bad eyesight, we don't know. That doesn't really matter, but he wants to make a plea here. And he says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. They're not working for God's glory. They're not working for the kingdom. They're not working from the power of the Spirit. They're working from their own appetites. They're they're functioning in the flesh. They're functioning in law rather than gospel. As he says, making a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And you can replace that with any kind of law that is placed upon people that says you can't come in unless you do this. And anything other than calling people to faith in Jesus uh, is preaching law. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So the very legalism that they're placing upon the community is not even something they themselves are able to keep. And he says, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I believe, as my dear friend shared in London, that everything we have experienced up to this point has only been the warm-up. I believe that you are moving in your church around the world, that there is an ever-deepening hunger in your children to experience the filling of your spirit and your intimate presence, a desire to be empowered to bring your good news to a lost and broken world, a desire to be conduits of your peace, of your gospel, of your love. And so, Lord, I ask right now that by your Holy Spirit that you would guide my tongue, that I would be a conduit of your Spirit, that I would decrease that you might increase. And I pray that for all of us as a community, that we all come to this place and we enter this space together in weakness, that in our weakness, your power might be demonstrated. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. When I was in London, Mark Sayers was giving a 10-minute message, and it was very impactful for me. And it it gave me insight even into what I wanted to talk about around this message of what it means to be a community that's shaped by the cross, what it means to be a community that's that's spirit-filled and in step with the spirit. And he said, you know, there's a sense that the spirit is moving around the world right now. He said there's a sense that God's people are, are growing in their hunger to experience more, to be used more, 
to understand the living Christ more. And he said, what if everything up to this point has just been the warm-up? And I just grabbed a hold of that because as we've moved into this new building, it seems like, it seems like the, the path has been cleared for us to truly push into the gospel in such a way that the revival that I have longed for since I started Door of Hope uh, can become a reality because I know that this is our desire as a community, our desire as brothers and sisters in Christ, and even the desire of the churches that are preaching the gospel throughout the city. We want to see collectively a move of God that cannot be described in human terms, that is supernatural in the outpouring of God's presence, of his Holy Spirit, of an awakening to our desperate need for him. We want to see revival. That's the longing of the heart. And I believe that everything up to this point has just been the warm-up. And I think that moving forward, if we want to actually push into what God has for us, we need to actually start once again at that basic place of what does it mean to be a cross-centered community. And are we a community that is marked by the flesh, or are we a community that's marked by the cross? And so I'm just going to lay out one simple premise for you today, one point, and we're going to explore that. And if we could get the next slide. This is the idea that I want us to dig into. That our power as a community flows out of our persistent shared weakness. I want you to mark that word. It flows out of our persistent shared weakness before the cross of Jesus. That humility as a community is both the beginning and end to experiencing the empowerment or the filling of the Spirit and the very presence of God that we're all hungry for. This is the key to being a community that is marked by the gentle grace of Jesus. Mark went on to say that in this current age in which we live, it is increasing in its anxiety, its restlessness, and its chaos. And he believes that the church's role as God awakens his people to his presence that when we allow ourselves to be filled with the Spirit of Christ, that what we become is the conduits of the, of the very living Christ himself, the one who said, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest, that what the world needs from us is for us to bring the peace and the shalom. And what Paul says at the end of this section, he, he says at the close of the letter, and all of you who hold to this idea of being defined by the cross and the cross alone, mercy and peace upon you all. I believe not just upon us, but it becomes a reality through us. And how do we carry the gospel of Christ to a broken world? Listen, in an increasingly secular age, the only thing that will break through to this lost world is the supernatural power of Jesus Christ by his spirit. Not our intellects, not our oratory skills, but the humble man, woman, who is surrendered to King Jesus. So, in order for us to actually define what it looks like to be a community that's marked by the cross, we unfortunately have to begin with where Paul begins, which is, what does it look like to be a community marked by the flesh? And sadly, guys, as long as we are in these fallen bodies, redeemed though we may be, it is still very easy and possible to move from a cross-centered Christian to the flesh. 
It seems like the possibilities of that lie before us each and every day. And so let's look at what it looks like when a community begins to become more controlled by the flesh than by the gospel. So what, are, what does it mean to boast in the flesh? First of all, I want to just state that that word boast is very closely connected in the Greek to, the word, to a Greek word that speaks of branding. It's, it's, it's the thing that defines you. It's like it marks you. Uh, and, and I don't know if any of you have been branded, but sadly I have been. And it really hurts. <laughs> it's really dumb, and it really hurts. And I think being branded by Christ, being marked by the gospel, is a painful experience. And the blessing actually is discovered through that pain. But sadly, we often choose the pain of being defined by the flesh. And that kind of pain is very painful, but it actually leads to more pain and ultimately death. We need to choose our pain, I really think, wisely as a church. Let's choose the pain of the cross, not the pain of the flesh. But what does it mean to be marked by this flesh? What does it mean to boast in the flesh? Boasting in the flesh is simply another way of saying living according to law. And I want to just define for you what I mean by that, because law is whatever your preferred guilt management system is. That is whatever ladder you are climbing to become good enough. To become the ideal person that you've yet to figure out how to become. And sadly, when we live with that kind of reality, when we live according to law, that is our guilt management systems, it becomes almost impossible not to apply that to everyone around us. So we start to place our standards upon people. It's what I often call selective sanctification. It's that external living that's not driven by the presence of God, by his, by his Holy Spirit, but by the little things that we surround ourselves with, the practices that we keep that make us feel um, comfortable sleeping at night. So when we think about the marks of the flesh, what I want us to understand is this, because we often focus on legalism, because that's sort of the emphasis of Galatians, but that's not really the primary issue in a church in a church in the heart of the city of pleasure, which is Portland. And I believe that there are two extremes when it comes to being marked by the flesh that are found in pretty much every church universally and often are found in our lives at one point or another, and that is the legalist and the libertine. The 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 legalist, I always like to say, misunderstands grace. And the libertine abuses grace. Both are equally judgmental. The legalist has found a means of living that makes them feel comfortable with themselves. And they look upon other people and say, you're not, you're not achieving what you ought to be achieving unless you live like me. It's that I expect you to do what I'm doing. And if, you're, if you don't, then you're not okay with, you can't possibly be okay with Jesus. I know the legalist well, because I've been one before. I probably will be one again at some point. The libertine, though, is just as judgmental, because the libertine is, hey, I'm covered in grace, and I can live as I want. And the, and the libertine actually looks around at the rest of the church and says, oh, you guys are so uptight. You don't really understand the gospel. You know, you're so stiff. You're so conservative. You know, you think, you think you got it figured out, but you totally don't even understand the culture. I get the culture. I'm connected. I'm cool. I love Jesus. I'm the one that left the joint in the offering box. I know you. 
I understand the libertine spirit as well. And you can see how both of them are ultimately functioning from the flesh. And I think that both are driven not by God's glory, but by fear of human opposition and the love of human praise. So when we think about the legalist, here's the issue with the legalist. Let me ask you a question, because you may be asking, am I, am I legalistic? I don't know if I'm legalistic. Is it, aren't we supposed to have ethical standards by which we live? And yes, Jesus' kingdom is an ethical kingdom. But legalism is not driven by your relationship with Jesus. It often comes out of the fact that that relationship is sadly missing. And so what you have is the external form. You have the letter, but not the spirit. And, and I think that a good way to ask the question of whether or not you're a legalist is this. Let me just ask you this question. Do you think you're good? Don't answer that, and please don't raise your hand if you do. <laughs> do you think you're good? I mean, really, if I, if I, when that question is provoked, I guarantee that there are some in this room that would say, yeah, I think I'm a good person. My dad told me he thinks he's a good person. He doesn't know Jesus. He's a grumpy old man dying alone in Alaska right now. But he, even he is fundamentally bought in to the lie of our society and our world that we are basically good by nature. It's not what the scriptures declare. And I think of the very words of Jesus. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking, I don't care if you're like a mature believer who's followed Jesus your whole life. Do you, in this place, think, I am actually good. Because remember what the young rich ruler asked Jesus? When he ran up to him, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And what was Jesus' answer to him? He said, why do you call me good? There is none who is good but God. What was he saying to that young man? He was saying, you're not good, and I'm God. But you see, that is the nature of the flesh, is that the moment we think we are good, we have put ourselves in the place of God. Now, the problem with this is that our fundamental misunderstanding of our own sinfulness and brokenness, and where I've often seen this play out the most, I am horribly aware of the fact that I am not good. But that has not always been, when I came to Jesus, I got saved later in life, so I was very aware of my sin, but I was also extremely zealous when I got saved, and I know what it's like to be a legalist. I worked at a church in California where I worked for a man who I was growing increasingly uncomfortable with the direction that he was taking the church. In my own self-righteousness, in my own uh, desire uh, to, you know, bring, you know, the real gospel to the, to the church, I began, instead of confronting the man that I worked with, with the things that I was uncomfortable with, I did the classic legalist, I am good, and people need to listen to me, by talking to everyone about that pastor except the pastor. Now, I was leading an evening ministry where I was learning to teach, and it was growing. And I began to think, I, I, like, he's not preaching the gospel. He's preaching, you know, seeker-sensitive nonsense. And, like, he needs to preach the cross. He needs to preach. And I just want you to know, I 
absolutely believed in the, in the very core of my being that I was right, that it was actually righteous what I was doing. And I was so blind to my own pride, to my own sin, that I even took it all the way up to where I finally did confront him and said, I'm going to leave the church and take a job at another church where they're more serious about the gospel, but I'll stay for a while. And he goes, no, you won't. You're fired. You come get your stuff tomorrow, and you get out of the church. And I got, I got off the phone, and that's when the weight of my own pride, the Lord utilized the very direct words from the guy I was critiquing uh, to show me how far off I had gotten, how in the flesh I had gotten. And listen, my desire was right. My desire was to see the gospel preached, the desire to see the scriptures taught, but I allowed, the, I allowed uh, pride to grow behind the, the, uh, the front of spirituality. And that's why it's so ugly in the church. That's why I just want you guys to know that the greatest people I have ever known and the absolute worst people I have ever known are Christians. And I don't mean to say that mean because I have been the absolute worst person I know behind the masquerade of following Jesus. And when I got off that phone, the Lord brought me to my knees and Darcy can tell you, I could not stop crying. I could not stop crying. I just kept crying. I knew I had made a horrible mistake. I knew I was blowing up my life with my family. We didn't even really have a solid job to go to. And I was like, I don't know what to do, Lord. And the Lord's like, you're going to go. I felt the Lord prompt me to go to Gary the next morning. He's like, wait in front of the building until he gets there, and you're going to repent, and you're going to ask for forgiveness, and you're going to ask to keep your job, and you're going to stay until I release you. And I was like, all right, Temecula, here we go. Uh, so I show up, and Gary said, Josh, I forgive you. I totally forgive you. I love you. I want you here, but here's the deal. You can't do your Sunday evening service anymore. You're not allowed to teach any longer. And, uh, and, and not only that, I need you to get up tonight, and I need you to actually confess to all the people who have no idea what's going on that you're struggling with pride, and then I'm going to give a message on pride, and I'm going to use you as an example. And Darcy and I sat in the front row, and that's exactly what happened. And it was brutal. Whether that was the right approach, I think it was a little extreme, personally. <laughs> but it's what happened. And I think that this is the thing. Uh, this is what so terrifies me uh, about, about legalism and about, about like having this, this self-righteousness uh, that drives us. Because, I mean, this is, this is so serious, guys. Listen to this. David Zoll in Seculosity, I'm going to quote him a couple more times because I just finished the book finally last week, and I love this book. He said, people who think they're good are usually pretty mean. They often feel good about being mean. He goes, as my friend Sherry never tires of reminding me in regard to her fundamentalist upbringing, a culture dominated by outward demonstrations of piety will become an increasingly merciless place. Full not only of self-justification, but self-consciousness and fear, it will be a place that crucifies rather than forgives. Ouch. The law produces self-righteousness. If you think you're killing it, and despair, if you know you're not. 
demanding a standard that we ourselves cannot keep. That's the legalist. But what about the libertine? Unfortunately, I have multiple illustrations of how I've been a libertine as well. Probably not as healthy to share with the church. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 to 17 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So the libertine has this thing where they've, they've come into an, an awareness of what God's grace is, but they're utilizing their freedom to serve the flesh, and they think that they're just like the rebellious kid that's like, I'm going to do what I want, Jesus will forgive me. But in actuality, when we live like that, the reality of Jesus begins to diminish and diminish and diminish, and we become more snarky, more embittered, more cynical toward the church. We often judge those who we consider to be too conservative, too churchy, too full of their piety, when in actuality it's a reverse kind of piety that lacks humility just as much as the legalist. And I think that, that the issue and that the libertine finds himself in is that whole idea of, of you know, flaunting your freedom to prove to, you, to prove to those around you that, like, you're being dumb. Like, oh, you're offended that I watch this show or you're offended that, you know, like, that I drink or you're offended that I do this. And instead of actually caring about how we live in a way that makes people feel the peace of the gospel— we actually go out of our way to make people feel uncomfortable with our self-justifying freedom. I've been there too. I've done that as well. I actually, I will share one humbling moment. I, a couple years ago, made a scathing comment from the pulpit on parents who are against Harry Potter. And went on and on about how, like, it's so dumb to be against something if you haven't even read it, and it's wrong, and blah, blah, blah. And I had one of my dear friends, one of our elders at the time who was with me from the very beginning, he took me out to coffee and said, Josh, what you did on Sunday was wrong. You weren't preaching the gospel. You weren't preaching scripture. You were giving, you were giving uh, a personal subjective, a subjective thought that made anyone who disagreed with you feel like they were less than you. And you need to repent. <laughs> and I was like, when Michael Elward, who is our most handsome elder, says something like that, <laughs> I got up the next Sunday and I repented to the church. Because he was right. I was wrong. I was using my freedom in Christ to make people feel bad about their convictions around parenting. That's not my place. Even if I think he's wrong. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> So here's these two attitudes. Here's these two realities. Listen, both extremes miss the cross and they do incredible damage to the witness of the church. That's the works of the flesh. And you can see how easy it is to slip from one pendulum to the other. One to the other. So what do we do? What's the answer to all of this? How do we stop creating ladders to climb to prove that we're good enough? And what will actually bring transformation to our community, to our lives, to our community, and to the city of Portland? And the answer lies in the remaining part of the chapter. If you look at verses 11 through, or 14 through 18, he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first pillar of door of hope is we preach Christ crucified. The cross is the place where justice and mercy kiss. The cross is the place that says that the only 
the only playing ground is the foot of the cross, which means that there is no socioeconomic standard. There is no race, uh, uh, racial ethnic dividing line. Everybody is on the even playing field. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. Paul says, this is the only thing that will define me. I will boast in nothing but the cross because the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Because the cross is power to those who have clung to King Jesus, accepted his forgiveness, his transformation. And he says, by which the world, and he's speaking of that world system, all the pressures, all the, the religious realities of our world, the pious nature that is found within the human heart and its attempt to justify its existence. He says, I have been crucified to that. I will not be defined by these lines of demarcation that tells, that is constantly separating people and saying, you're in, you're, in, you're not. These realities are no longer my reality. I have been crucified to it. it. What did he say in the beginning? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he says, for neither circumcision counts for anything. All of our external practices mean nothing if we haven't been born again, essentially. Doesn't mean a thing unless we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What does Paul write in his letter to the Corinthians? He says, if anyone be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. We can often play upon, I mean, one of the great challenges that we face in our current society is the difficulty that we have in accepting the cross as our center. And, and we continue to allow the world to actually shape our view of ourselves and of others. I mean, I think about, actually, I want to just use it as an example again because I do think that there's, I think there's benefits in these things and I also think that there's great, I was talking with Mark Sayers about it and he actually said, he was talking about his own struggles with the fads that rise up in the church, but Enneagram being a very big fad right now within the church. Uh, and, and Enneagram, some of you are like, oh my, don't you go there. I love this. I am a three. You need to understand me. Uh, and Fine, whatever. Here's the problem. Is that often we utilize these things. Oh, they define. Oh, okay, so I'm a seven. What does that mean? I'm flaky. And excitable. Great. That's my excuse. No, that's just who I am. That's how I'm hardwired. You have to understand that you can't count on me for anything according to this system that has defined me. Now I'm taking it to an extreme because I obviously don't like my type. And I want to be a one or a four or a five. My wife's a four. If I was a four, I probably wouldn't even talk about Enneagram because it's so cool. Uh, so... But the, the point is, is that we often utilize these things as excuses for our behavior, saying that's who I am, and unless people accept that, then, then, you know, whatever, I don't need them. When in reality, what we all need to do, you know what the church should actually be a lot more like? It should be a lot more like AA. It should. Because the starting step and the closing step of AA is humility. You go to AA Alcoholics Anonymous, you walk into a meeting and you sit down in a chair and you say, I say, my name is Josh, I'm an alcoholic. The first step and the last step is recognizing that you cannot fix your own life. That you need help. That you need something bigger than yourself. 
What's cool about AA is it's not a place where, where people are judged for, in fact, in fact, the person that would feel extremely uncomfortable in AA is the person that denies they need help because that's the whole purpose of being there. If the church would be Sinners Anonymous, I think we would actually begin to get somewhere. If we actually came in realizing that we are weak, broken people, that the best things we do, and we are capable of amazing things, we can do such good things, but everything that you do that's good is still mixture. Everything. As I like to remind people in so much love that you are not a bigger failure than God already knows that you are, but why won't you admit it? So he says, listen, I've, been, I've died to what the world's trying to tell me and the world to me. He goes, I'm a new creation. He says, as for all those who walk by this rule, if you actually accept God's de- declaration over you through Jesus on the cross, because what does Jesus on the cross tell the world? That we are lost. That we are damned. That there is not hope for us apart from him. That God loves us so much that he was willing to enter into the absolute mess that we have made of his creation, turning our backs upon him, our creator. He says, in spite of all that, God's grace is his one-way love, his willingness to enter into your and my brokenness, to all the garbage that we create in our lives, all the masks that we put upon ourselves to present ourselves to the world in hopes that they might think we are something that we know that we're not and never will be. The cross actually strips all that stuff away. And what we find is God, in the form of a man, brutalized beyond human recognition, arms spread, come to me all you are weary. The insanity of the gospel. The God, the God who created everything, the creator became creature, that he didn't just come to identify with you in your humanity. He came to identify with your sin. And if you can't admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior, then what can Jesus offer you? And he says, listen, when you accept the cross as your center, peace and mercy follow. And it doesn't just come upon your life. It actually begins to work through your life and it touches and reaches other people. And if we're crucifying one another with our criticisms, rather than allowing the cross to crucify our flesh, then we, we shouldn't even be here. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. I want to just close with a, with a powerful illustration. Because uh, I, I kept rereading sections of David's book because he really wanted me to give him a... Um, just my thoughts on it. And, uh, and there's a section actually on parenting, the, the seculosity of parenting. And this story about this mom blew my mind. Uh, it, it's called The Dragon Mom is the title of this section. And he says, Ronan Rapp was born with Tay-Sachs disease, a rare genetic disorder for which there is no treatment and no cure. His mother, Emily, documented his short life in a blog that she turned into a book called The Still Point of a Turning World, capturing the heartbreaking yet utterly beautiful experience of parenting a child with a terminal diagnosis. Now, he goes on to describe 
this experience for her, and he, and he quotes a section from her book. He says, the situation forces a parent to live in the present tense, in the most vivid of ways. Before he died, Emily wrote, and this is from her book, she says, I have abandoned the future, and with it any visions of Ronan's scoring a perfect SAT, or sprinting across a stage with a Harvard diploma in his hand. We're not waiting for Ronan to make us proud. We don't expect future returns on our investment. We've chucked the graphs of developmental milestones, and we avoid parenting magazines at the pediatrician's office. Ronan has given us a terrible freedom from expectations, a magical world where there are no goals, no prizes to win, no outcome to monitor, discuss, or compare. Emily invokes a form of love that is fundamentally unconcerned with results or behavior because it can't be and is all the more powerful for it. She describes her love as the dragon mom, fierce and loyal and loving as hell. I was struck by that because I was even thinking about my own relationship with my children. And it was hard for me to admit it, traveling with my son to London last, uh, over the last 10 days, Henry and I actually had a lot of conversations. He's a junior and he's bright and he's a great student and he's, uh, he's responsible and he's an entrepreneur and I just, he inspires me. I, I love him so much. But I also have many times put pressures upon him uh, to be what I wasn't. And I'd put a lot of pressure on him for years to, to go into medical school because I think that he's such a natural academic. But really, that was my desire because that's what I wanted to be in high school before I threw it away by doing drugs and not having the discipline to do well in school. And so all of a sudden, we live vicariously through, through our child. We put, we put law on them. I put law on myself and upon my kids. And, and what I loved about this story is that it forces you to ask the question, and I think that this is the key to how we ought to be as a church. And I, 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 told, I felt like the Lord helped me even release those expectations upon Henry or Hattie, for that matter, and that I have Henry in my house for one more year. But, buddy, I think you should stay at home longer than that because we're not ready <laughs> to let go. Uh, is that my primary responsibility is to love my son where he's at, to support him where he's at. She reminds us, and I'm not saying that the key to being the church would be every time you talk to someone at church, just pretend like they might die at the end of the week, and it'll help you actually love them where they're at. But there is a power, all joking aside, say you come to someone at the church, and you've been legalistic toward them. You've, you've put all kinds of pressure on them and expectations upon them. Maybe you've come with a critical, maybe you've, maybe you've had issues with me as your pastor, and you're like, he's too free-spirited, there's not enough structure, blah, 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 whatever. And you come, and you, have, and you have those expectations. But say you come, and you're finally going to confront me. You're going to get real. You're going to share all your frustrations and, and all your disappointments and all the ways I've let you down. And I just simply looked at you and said, I just found out I have a week to live. Would you give me your laundry list then? Well, I, I hope to God not. I believe most of us, it changes everything. It changes the lens by which we look at a person because probably what would happen is can I give you a hug and I believe that if we as a church can actually live in the moment and love people where they're at I'm not saying that we don't that the gospel doesn't call people to change it does 
But I'm telling you right now, the way to make people change is not to hold over their heads some kind of invisible standard that you are holding over them. They probably don't even know about it. The way to bring change isn't to be the snarky libertine who, who does what he wants and then judges everyone because he thinks they're too stiff or uptight. No, the way that we become a community of faith that actually brings transformation and revival to the city of Portland is when we take off the mask, get rid of all that stupid stuff that often plagues our ability to truly worship our king in spirit and truth, and we come in and we say, we are sinners in need of the grace of Jesus, and I am ready to love you and to demand that you allow me to love you for it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance a person is inspired to, cha to change when they feel that you love them no matter what and we can't love each other that way apart from the Holy Spirit and we have to begin by just humbling ourselves and coming into the church recognizing whether it's community group whether it's whether it's your home Every day should be a place of humility. I am one who is broken, but I am receiving my completion in Jesus. But it's moment by moment. Perfection in this lifetime, I do not believe is possible. But those incremental degrees of closeness to Jesus, and here's the thing, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you allow the Holy Spirit in, actually the more broken you'll see yourself. You'll find one area has been fixed and he reveals another area that's completely glitchy. And that's the journey of faith. But if we could be, if we could be like Emily was with her son, fierce and loyal and loving as hell as a community, what would be more attractive to a people and a city that is so restless, so anxious, so lost? Are we recognizing that there will be no transformation in the city of Portland unless it is a supernatural move of Jesus. And so may the Spirit of God bring us to the foot of the cross, put us on that even playing field, and may we allow God to do his deadly work in our lives and we allow him to begin to burn us clean by his love because what we need right now is to accept the fact that on your worst thinking day, Jesus is crazy about you. He loves you so much. He is not content to exist without you. And if you've been the legalist, he loves you. If you've been the libertine, he loves you. And if you're something in between, he loves you. And when you walk away from the church, he still loves you. Because that's the pursuing love of God. And that needs to be the mark of our lives as well. Amen? Let's pray.